You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. As with a lot of music I've connected with making these podcasts, it's often hearing other people speak from the heart about the music they love that powers new discoveries. Discovery for me doesn't depend on context or knowledge or background. That's a that's a bonus. That's something to be pursued afterwards. Instead, I appear to look for passion or I appear to respond to passion in the way in which people speak about the music they love. Increasingly, though, it's a kind of passion that is expressed implicitly. Explicit passion just seems a bit too obvious, like the liberal application of cheap aftershave. A bit of a turn-off. It is then the intangible, unprovable thing I look for in an exchange. Implicit energy that signposts the kind of thing I'll end up pursuing further. You may well hear that in this podcast above the din of the coffee shop where me, conductor and artistic director Tom Hammond, accompanied by his mongrel terrier Patch, convened to record Podcast 67 early in December 2019. Tom conducts the Orchestra of the Swan in a concert on the 21st of January in Stratford-upon-Avon, the programme of which includes music by Sibelius, music that has remained close to Tom's heart since accidentally discovering it in amongst his parents' record collection when he was a boy. I think, for me, his music takes me to an imaginative space that's actually more attractive than the real world. So, Tom, I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, they are... Um, I, I, one of the problems I have with Sibelius is that if I start listening to him, I just lose hours. It happened to me last night. Apologies to anyone who didn't get an email from me that I should have sent yesterday because once I went into that world, um, I was just lost in it and hours just go by. Tom talks about his love for Sibelius' music more in this podcast, his work with the Orchestra of the Swan and his work with the Hertford Gym Music Festival, which runs in June 2020. You'll also hear extracts from Sibelius' Twanula, played by the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein, Sibelius' Humoresque from Anne-Sophie Mutter and the Berlin Staatskapelle, plus an exclusive excerpt from a collaboration with composer Bernard Hughes, who happens to feature in the next podcast, by the way, uh, an album of works for all the family, including one by Hughes himself, entitled Not Now, Bernard. I'm Tom Hammond. I'm a musician and... I conduct most of the time, about 80% of my working life is conducting orchestras, almost exclusively orchestras. Um, I, on top of that, I also do CD producing, um, which is a relatively recent thing, and that's probably about 10% of my life. And then the other 10% is that I run um, a music festival in Hertfordshire, and that's been going for the last five years. And that's ostensibly why we're meeting. Yeah, yes. I suppose it's all it's and about really all the things that I do. Yeah, yes. yeah. Okay. Uh, and also we have a thoroughly good first because uh, 
uh, we have a guest with us. I, I think you need to introduce the guest. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I'm just uh, tickling away my little dog here who's called Patch. He's a rescued... Um, we don't have much clue what terrier, but he's lots of different terriers mashed up. Right. And... Uh, He's fantastic. He's a lovely little he dog. He is adorable, I have yeah, to say. Yeah. And uh, has wiry fur and a little coat, a little jacket. Yeah, keeping him warm. Does he normally wear the jacket? Um, actually, in this weather, we've been. He's he's usually out. And he's got a selection. He's got two or three. I think now we're not we're not too bad. They're not the right. sort of worst of fluffy dog jumpers. Right. But uh, you know. when you buy the jacket, are you buying the jacket for the dog, or are you secretly buying the jacket for yourself? There's one that I'm very jealous of that right. he has. I have to say, yeah. Yeah. we understand one another. <laughs> yeah. Although obviously the dog's not a stylish addition. You're you're retrieving treats, That's and I'm going to have to I do think, treats. I think the context is important that we you know we we, we go through all of the. Yeah. Oh, and he's he's very well behaved, but he, look at that nose. He knows that he can uh, have a treat after a little. Oh, I can't quite bend it, so <laughs> he can do something very cute here. Patch, can you give me a paw? Oh, oh, oh my, there oh, you my go. Oh, Fantastic. God. That'll give us about three minutes right. peace and quiet. <laughs> okay, we'll get the key messages in first. Yes. Um, uh, tell me about the festival. Tell me, tell me about that first. So the festival is called the Hertfordshire Festival of Music and like so many things in my life and career it all happened a little bit by accident um, the short version of the story is that I started conducting the orchestra in Hertford which is the lovely but frankly not very well known county town of Hertfordshire because St Albans kind of dominates that part of the world and yet it is the naming town absolutely it is and it's got amazing histories actually and some of them quite remarkable music histories that I I didn't know about when I first went there and before we started the festival I'll I'll tell you about that Um, but I was discussing with people in the orchestra the idea that as a local non-professional but really very accomplished group of musicians who self-promote six concerts a year, that they should think about going and performing for someone else so they don't have to worry about um, the whole business of selling tickets, etc., etc. So I was detailed after a meeting to research music festivals in Hertfordshire. Now, there's so much music making that happens there, you know, choirs every five minutes, orchestras everywhere, and there are lots of fabulous... Uh, music clubs, concert clubs will do things on a sort of monthly basis but with the exception of the St Albans Organ Festival which is a biannual thing um, and it's just centred in St Albans as the name might suggest there was no kind of intense um, music celebration that was happening and there are some fantastic venues to explore so this then fell into a conversational walk with a dear friend of mine who's a composer called James Francis Brown and by the end of this walk we just decided to plan out essentially an international music festival. Why is there so much, uh, what surprises me is to learn that there is so much music making, presumably amateur music making or non-professional yeah. music making in Hertfordshire, why Why is that? Is that because there's a lot of, this will sound quite crude, is it because there's a lot of money there or, I mean is that partly? I think that's fair to say, I think it's a demographic thing for sure. And because it's so close to London and so accessible, there's actually a lot of professional musicians who reside in Hertfordshire. I think a lot of members of the London Symphony live up there. It's got great transport routes in and out. But certainly there's a demographic. I mean, it's interesting because you find other counties in this country where I don't think demographic is necessarily a thing, 
but there is a really strong music making tradition so for example Northamptonshire which isn't exclusively well off at all yet they've got one of the strongest county music services going whereas you've got places like Hertfordshire, Hampshire, Oxfordshire where you would have to be honest and say yeah there's a demographic going on um, but it, it's interesting other places I've noticed like um, North East London and that border with Essex that's got an amazingly strong especially choral tradition apparently I don't know if this is true but I was told that a lot of European emigres after the Second World War a lot of Jewish people a lot of people from um, Eastern European countries who came here because of the Second World War established a really strong music tradition because they were out in the east part of London where it was cheap to live but it's kind of stayed there as a, as a kind of imprint which I think is fascinating it's a perspective I hadn't really considered um, uh, Suffolk always has had a strong uh, county youth music system uh, I don't know whether that's still the case now I'm not really up to mm. speed on county education my assumption is it's not uh, but I hadn't really considered that link between uh, music education and amateur music making. Now that I say that out loud, that sounds utterly ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting because um, I grew up in the West Midlands, and the bit I, I was on the border between the West Midlands and Staffordshire, and I didn't know at the time. But Staffordshire at that point had uh, sort of what's this sort of early nineties had an incredibly strong music tradition going. Um, with a fabulous youth orchestra um, it was kind of everywhere within that county now that's covering places like the potteries which again are not you know we're not talking about wealthy parts of the country at all um, in Wolverhampton where I was it was you know frankly a bit so-so um, but now I know that the music world in Staffordshire has uh, has really been decimated and actually in other counties where it has been strong um, alas you know it's the it's the cuts and funding and, and the general attitude that's pervasive about the use of music in education and how useful it is to young people. I feel as though I have pushed you away from your original point that was meant to be the festival. Mm. Uh, so there was a big tradition in, in Hertfordshire. You decided to set up a festival. What exactly does the festival cover? So we are um, a summer festival. The idea was to, um, we're thinking very much of the audience's enjoyment because um, in the summer months, going into a concert and coming out in the light, I think is a wonderful thing. Um, what we wanted to do was create a place, a, a festival where unashamedly excellence was a huge part of it, to do extraordinary things, basically, invite extraordinary people. Um, and at the same time, to try and do the outreach side of the festival at the same level so nothing is sort of um, half-baked um, everything we try to do is at, at that level and just trying to be imaginative as well so we've we've themed some of our years and um, we've tried to make links we've tried to we're expanding sort of historical links as well um, and the big thing is actually to create a festival where the artists themselves are so well looked after and feel so valued because they are they're, in fact that they're, they're all it is um, that they really want to come back year on year and they would look forward to coming to our festival and performing as something really special for them I'm uh, actually when you talk about uh, looking after the artists and providing them with an experience that 
I have a similar thing about when I'm filming people, and certainly when I'm when I'm interviewing people, that there isn't there is an element of aside from what they are contracted or paid to do, there isn't there is a sense of responsibility to make sure that when they enter into this world, whatever it is, whether it's your festival or or podcasting or filming, that they feel as though they have been treated royally. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering what I know what I need to do in order, I think, to make them feel I don't want to say special <laughs> that, that sounds a little sick of antic, but I'm wondering what you think you need to do in order to make them feel welcomed and accommodated I think, I think it, it's giving them an environment so that it can be pragmatically the, a great acoustic so the right venue for what they do um, that's a big one um, but then it's small things like giving them decent changing facilities yes. or um, you know and making sure they know where they can get a decent meal locally um, checking that they've got everything they need just making them feel like what we want from them is for them to be able to give their absolute and utter best and I know from my performing experience that it's amazing the difference it can have on say an orchestra if they've just got changed in a lovely warm comfortable roomy place you know being in places like symphony hall where you you know you you're not squeezed in and squashed in and it and it's it's there to make those musicians feel like they are truly valued and that they can give of their very 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 best we also try to pay people well um not make them wait (laughs) yeah 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 not make them wait for their money if we've got it and we can pay them straight away we would do that um, to give them a, a, a decent say in the programming as well what we, we tend to say is that we've got a bit of a focus or a highlight on, on X, Y, Z in this festival you don't need to feel constricted by that but would you be interested in exploring it and that's been really interesting as well because they, they usually have been really interested in exploring those things so they then come up with a programme that they feel is um, that they've contributed to it massively um, I'm also struck by logistics that there's also, from my perspective, there's a need to make sure. It's not that you need to be knowledgeable when you're dealing with artists necessarily. You don't need to, you don't want to signpost your knowledge in every conversation. But uh, increasingly, I'm of the mind that it's important to signal to them in some kind of implicit way that actually you're on their level, you occupy their world, and that they're not feeling alienated in this experience. I know that sounds quite quite petty and quite detailed, but as I move around sort of broadcasting and classical music sector, I'm reminded how important that is. I, I think the fact that um, both myself and James have been involved in the music world for, for such a long time and over lots of different aspects of it, also are on-the-ground staff. So um, our manager... She's also a musician. It's not her performing is not a profession, but she is a regular performer herself. She knows what it's like. Um, our front of house team. We've got an amazing um, volunteer front of house team that's led by um, a, a gentleman who was a cellist in a very famous string quartet for many years. So that all filters through, and they know what it's like, and what you want, and what you need. 
so that's the festival. When is the festival on next year, please? Um, in 2020, we're running between the 12th and the 20th of June, so it's around oh, well, midsummer. Away. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. Away. Is it planned? Is there anything that you can tell me about it now? Yeah, a lot of it is planned. I mean, like it's everyone in the arts world, it's, it's uh, it, 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 a lot of it is, of course, you know, funding related. Um, but we've got as our principal artist. Uh, in 2020 we've got the violinist Chloe Hanslip who I can um, reveal I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying will be coming back having just given birth to her first child so it's going to be a big thing for her she's going to be giving a master class um, she's going to be giving a recital with the pianist Danny Driver and she's also going to be appearing <clears throat> in an orchestral context with myself and she'll be doing the Beethoven Violin Concerto because of course it's, it's 2020 um, so that's a yeah, that's a huge highlight. <laughs> and there's, I don't think we've overdone the Beethoven. Um, right at the end of the, oh, I think it's possible. Yeah, we try to do a few things that are a little bit different. So um, the finale event, a group of professors and students from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama are going to present at, at least one Beethoven symphony, but in an unusual format, um, but one that was very much recognised and I'm sure um, validated by the composer which is in a wind ensemble so um, horns clarinets, basically like the Dvorak wind serenade if people know the lineup of that well it'll quite possibly be number 7 and or number oh, 8 number yeah. 7 is great yeah. uh, I first heard a wind of it um, I thought it was arranged by Nicholas Daniel but I could be wrong about this uh, but he did it at Snape and um, in the last movement because, because there are no strings other than a double bass I think they underpinned the bass line with a double bass um, because you had heard the entire symphony just in wind uh, and then you heard the grinding bass at the end it's like oh my oh my god it's like an organ that had just kicked in It's one of my desert island pieces for sure. And then I heard um, a version with uh, Sabine Meyer and a group from, I think it was basically the Berlin Phil wind right. section and double oh, bass. Well, as you can imagine, it was yeah. a bit ropey. Yeah. Um, no, I was so blown away with it. And so we thought, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll give more than a nod to Beethoven, good grief, in his big anniversary year, but just in a slightly different context. So that would be the festival finale. 
um, I'll try and pick out one or two other highlights. The um, fabulous group ZRI, which stands for, let me get my German correct, I believe it's Zum Roten Ingel, which is the Red Hedgehog. Now, that's the tavern that Brahms used to hang out in. Okay. And what they do as a group is explore the crossing points between... Um, Eastern European gypsy music, folk music, klezmer, and classical, and they do lots of different programs. They performed in the festival last year, doing a fabulous uh, Charlie Chaplin event with live film. Um, they're an incredibly energised group. Um, they they sing as well as play, um, and this program is called the Cellar Sessions. Explores Schubert, but in a, an amazing context. And I will only say that. It, it, goes all the way from Schubert to Donna Summer. Okay, I mean I never imagined that that was possible and yet you've got it on the, on the programme. very good friend and long-standing colleague of uh, one of their members who's a, a fabulous I, I struggle to put I hate to put him in a box try <laughs> I'll try um, he is an, uh, an uber artist who happens to play the cello to a phenomenal degree and um, he's also a, a, a singer a brilliant baritone um, he acts he directs he arranges he just does everything what's his name he's called Matthew Sharp and um, he's quite short no, not that that's a no, not. I don't think he. Mind you, I'm quite short, so he's slightly taller than me. Does he so have dark hair? he does have dark hair, yeah, and a winning smile. Yes, I think I've spoken to him before. Yeah, I think I know who you mean. He's yeah. quite a remarkable. He has quite remarkable energy about him, almost terrifying. So. Yes, I'd, okay, I'd say that is true. We are talking about the same person. <laughs> I mean, Matt and I have. Um, we've done so many different things together. We first met when he was the narrator for Paul Patterson's uh, retelling of uh, Little Red Riding Hood in which he played all three parts himself in fact so well that he his wolf terrified an audience of about 2,000 children in okay. Symphony Hall wow. um, okay. 
and then we've done uh, concerti together the Dvorak we're doing the Elgar actually not in the festival but another in another part of the world next season um, but we've collaborated on different things I've produced uh, an upcoming solo CD or elements of that CD for him he's and sort of a he's sort of a, a, a British uh, Renault Capital yeah, I mean, yeah, I think he, he he sort of defies being put in a box and good for him for doing it. Uh, what I think he is, in a word, is a performer, but that's covering an awful lot of things. He, he's a true performer, um, but he's also appearing on his own in the festival because he um, wrote, he's written several um, shows for younger people, and one of them, which is uh, Around about the 10 year old market is something called Tommy Foggo Superhero. Right. So he will um, encap- absolutely captivate an audience on his own with his voice and his cello for an hour and tell a tale. He's actually, I think, he's just got back, but he's been in India doing it uh, around India for the last month or so. I should clarify, just so that I don't have to edit it, I wasn't comparing his play to Campus on the <laughs> I'm not suggesting yes. that they'd say. Yeah. Uh, clearly, uh, clearly, Matthew is talented, almost sickeningly so, uh, that he can do all of those things. So that's the festival, but there are other things that you do. What is going on in January? I'm sure there are things going on in January for you, Yes, um, well, uh, I'm, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. What, my... I thought you were going to tell me I can't tell you about <laughs> <laughs> No, I can tell you everything. Um, so the, the, how I fell in love with music in the first place was through one composer, um, and that's Sibelius. That's where it started. I'm not saying I necessarily think he's the greatest composer that ever lived, but he's certainly one of my absolute heroes. Yeah, yeah, really hard. But without accidentally discovering his music, I'm not sure I'd have ever fallen into music at all. So I've got a lot to be. Which then begs the question: How did you? How does one accidentally discover his music? Um, by parents who got an incredibly eclectic record collection. I'm not entirely sure. Um, how they assembled it and why because we in that in the, amongst all those LPs there were um, let me just try and remember Neil Diamond Abba um, the Dubliners because my mum's Irish um, and uh, Lonnie Donegan my god uh, my dear departed father um, seemed to like him um, but they had three classical uh, token frankly I think classical albums in there there was Chopin, there was Beethoven, and there was Sibelius, and they they were all the greatest hits. I think that was a new thing (laughs) when they bought them. And I remember that Sibelius, I mean, I remember the cover because it had a depiction of what I now know as the Swan of Tuonela. Um, And that sort of must have grabbed me. I was probably eight, nine, bored uh, in the house alone. Uh, uh, Nothing much to do. Yeah, I know, well, that's too true. <laughs> no, I'm with you on that one. Um, but my, I, I started playing that Sibelius, and in particularly the the Swan of Tuonela, on a on a loop, and I don't know why, and I don't know what exactly it was capturing in my imagination. But from that moment on, that was that was it.
these years later, um, I uh, had a call from the uh, artistic director of the orchestra, the Swan, who's an amazing uh, violinist, David LePage. He's also, a, I know him through Matt Sharp, actually. Um, and he said, Tom, would you like to come and conduct a concert of Spadis with the orchestra? And I said, uh, yeah, uh, get what? And he said, well, we'd love you to do the, the Seventh Symphony. Now, that's already a little bit off-piste, I must say, because usually people would go for the second or the fifth if you're thinking about, you know, the well-known and the, and the box office And then he mentioned the idea of doing um, some other relative obscurities. So... Um, Valstrice, which is not is, is very well known in Spanish, but it's got a partner piece called Scene with Cranes. The music comes from the same play, Kualama, uh, which uh, is the uh, means death in the lovely Finnish <laughs> darkness. Um, and then I just started throwing in just chants in my arm, and because I thought I know where this is going. We need a concerto. It's got to be the violin concerto. That's what's going to sell it in terms of box office. And I just said, I tell you what, we couldn't do the. Uh, the six humoresques for violin and orchestra, which nobody knows, and uh, not many violinists know them actually, and certainly it can't be described as a massive audience puller. And Dave just said, yeah. And I had to pinch myself that I was just putting together this dream programme of Sibelius, and it's a, a lot of it that should, frankly, be so much better known, and even Sibelius lovers don't necessarily know these works. So that's a concert that's happening in January in Stratford-upon-Avon, the home of the Swan. Why, why the humoresques? Um, I say, um, and it's, I know it's quite controversial, I think they, as pieces of music compared to the Violin Concerto, knock the Violin Concerto out of the park and then some. Um, the Violin Concerto had a difficult beginning um, really, Sibelius was imagining himself as the soloist and was trying to live a vicarious thing through that piece. And it's so truly romantic. Truly romantic. Absolutely. And I think because A, it was about him, um, and B, because it had to be uh, seriously edited, it, it was unplayable almost in its first version. And although I love elements of that music, I, I, I can feel the, the sort of cut and shut element of it when I've conducted it. And well, there are just places where it's clearly had to be ripped apart and edited and stitched back together. Um, and it doesn't feel as cogent to me as much of his music. Whereas these humorists, the background is that he set about the idea of writing a second violin concerto, but they just came out as six miniatures. They're all about two, three minutes long. The title is a problem because humoresque suggests something that's flippant and, 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 and like little, you know, uh, sort of bonbons of music, which they're not. Um, and the other problem is that the orchestration is really weird. So some of them are just a string accompaniment. Some of them have some wind and brass, but each one is slightly different. And that causes you issues pragmatically with rehearsals. They're also hard for everyone. Good. Yes, they are. Why do something easy? Yeah. But here's the thing for me, because they're not about him being a famous violinist, which he had originally dreamt of. Um, they are. His his imagination is definitely rooted in nature, which is I know it's a massive cliche about Sibelius, but it really is where he finds those amazing spaces. And it's interesting, having said they're not famous uh, in Germany, where Sibelius is just never really been a hit at all 
um, one of those humorists has the same profile on German, the German equivalent of Classic FM as the Lark Ascending does for us here. And, and it's on every single day and everyone knows it but they don't know the other five <laughs> strangely uh, the one that you sent me and I can't remember what number it was uh, I listened to it on the way here and I was struck by how it sounds a little bit like at the beginning of it you'll have to remind me what number it is uh, at the beginning of it it sounds as though it's the musical equivalent of a sketch or some kind of technical drawing that hasn't been coloured in and then as the work carries on and it's only three minutes thirty or something as the work carries on um, then it feels like it's slowly being coloured in I mean that was, that was the image that came to mind when I heard it that another thing with Sibelius is that he often doesn't feel like he's completed things. Um, anyone who knows the third symphony, the end, it, it suddenly just stops. The seventh symphony just falls off a cliff edge. It, 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 it's not so much an, an ambiguous ending as it just ends there. I, I see, I think that he sort of wants to leave something to our imaginations as well and it's almost like he's deliberately I mean he oh, was so was a deliberate, a deliberate editorial I believe so right. yeah so I believe so yeah, I mean the, the thing about him is that I mean the, the the Seventh Symphony is the penultimate big thing that he wrote this famous 30 year silence which wasn't actually strictly a silence he did occasionally produce some small things because he needed the money none of them were of great quality um, but he was a person who he, he didn't it's almost like he didn't want to be found out he almost deliberately lays false trails when you try and interpret his music and you look at a score the instructions are full of very strange double negatives so you translate it literally and you'll say something like um, more and more less loud and you think what on earth are you trying to say and if people asked him about his music, he said he wouldn't explain it even to his own wife. And it's quite contorted. Yeah, I, I think he just had a deliberate air of mystery about him that he wanted to maintain. He sort of didn't want to be worked out. So these little miniatures, they, they are, like you say, they almost feel like they're sketches that weren't completed. And the six humorists don't necessarily tie together. They are like six, um, trying to think of a culinary equivalent, like sort of six tasting menu, a mousse-bouche or something like that. But my God, they're beautiful. And they take, certainly take me into an incredible imaginative space. There's one of them, uh, the third, that um, it, it sounds like someone who's gone into a forest and probably eaten a few um, mushrooms that they shouldn't have done. Uh, it's it's well, not they shouldn't. Well, they could have done and might have enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. Slightly more inclusive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you do, uh, clearly, you do love Sibelius, and I had been warned about this. Not that I needed to be warned, but I had been briefed, maybe, like that. Uh, I, I 
still don't understand why he's a hero. Um, I was thinking about this last night because I, I sat and re-listened to some of the things that I'd sent to you as a sort of starting point. And I, I was trying to find the, the words. I think, for me, his music takes me to an imaginative space that's actually more attractive than the real world. So, Tom, I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, they are... Um, one of the problems I have with Sebelius is that if I start listening to him I just lose hours it happened to me last night apologies to anyone who didn't get an email from me that I should have sent yesterday because once I went into that world um, I was just lost in it and hours just go by and he creates I mean you know a lot of it's based in a a frankly unfortunately slightly made up Finnish mythology Uh, the Kalevala which is um, was a, a 19th century kind of Construct, but it it talks about you know, the ancient. One of the pieces that I love dearly that I sent to you is called the Bard, which has got nothing to do with Shakespeare, but it's the idea of um, uh, a poet with the Finnish um, uh, cantala, which is like a very small harp sort of instrument, um, singing his, or telling his last song, uh, tale. He's singing his last song, and it's I think it's no longer than ten minutes. Um, and it's just the most beautiful, serene, um, suggestive thing. I, I, I love it, and that's why he's a hero. I think that's I think that's very true to say. I mean, you know, I, I it's interesting where with certain composers who I would say were I hate to use the word better, but let's say perhaps more um, skilled musicians or, or technically skilled. So Benjamin Britten, here's an example. Now there's a lot of Benjamin Britten that I love, and I think goes into the same draw for me. Sabadis, such as the uh, the Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings. But sometimes with Britain, I find that his intelligence is so... Um, it's slight, I find it slightly intimidating, and he's such a clever, clever song. Um, I don't necessarily warm to it, whereas with Sibelius... And weirdly with Nielsen, they're, they're such different composers. They lived in the same part of the world. They lived at roughly the same time. They couldn't be more uh, apart. Now, Nielsen I also love, but for completely different reasons, because Nielsen's just great at dealing with... Him humans and you know like Mozart he just paints real people so brilliantly uh, he's got as he said of himself uh, Nielsen he's got mud on his boots as a composer there's all sorts of little flaws and um, and what have you um, but I still somehow warm to him 
but uh, I think you're right about introspection. What? Uh, so when is this concert? Just remind me when this concert is. It is on Tuesday, the 21st of January, in Stratford upon Avon. Okay. If you look um, at the Orchestra of the Swans website, you will be able to find all the details. And what other things are you up to? Um, you want to tell me about things that are coming up that I think are interesting um, on a very different vein um, in February uh, release of a CD which is actually with um, the Orchestra of the Swan albeit in a, a chamber format um, and this is a CD for families as in there's something on for everyone and it's got music by uh, Judith Weir um, it's got music by Malcolm Arnold and it's got uh, a short uh, melodrama by John Ireland, which we don't uh, hardly have ever recorded before. Um, but the basis of, of this was that um, doing family concerts myself, something I do regularly, I'm always after new stuff. And I was put in contact with a composer called Bernard Hughes. This is now 10 years ago. Um, and I said, would you fancy writing something that would work in a children's concert? Uh, narrated perhaps with some audience participation. So he came up then with two brilliant little pieces based on two of his favourite stories from his own childhood. Um, one of which is called Not Now Bernard, probably not coincidence that he's called Bernard. Um, and the other one's called Isabel's Noisy Tummy. Both the stories were written by David McKean, who is of Mr Ben fame, for people who remember Mr Ben. And... Um, so Bernard came up with these narrated works and they're absolutely fantastic um, and they've had, quite a, they've had a lot of performances but we decided we wanted to record them as well so um, that all happened in July and after we did the music with Orchestra of the Swan we met up with our narrator Alexander Armstrong, no less and had a fantastic fun morning in a little studio in Oxfordshire um, so it's his, uh, his lovely uh, voice um, and that's coming out on the Orchid Classic labels in February. Bernard was a boy. Just an ordinary boy. lived with his mother and his father. They always seemed very busy. One afternoon, Bernard found his mum in the kitchen, doing the washing up. Hello, mum, said Bernard. His mother was too busy to take any notice. Not now, Bernard, said his mother. Upstairs, Bernard's father was hammering a nail into the wall to hang a picture on.
Hello, Dad, said Bernard. His father looked round and accidentally hammered his finger. Not now, Bernard, said his father. If I'm not mistaken, it has an utterly gorgeous sleeve. It has an uh, I utterly gorgeous sleeve. It does have a beautiful sleeve illustration. It's a book. Um, yes, or someone sat at a book that's turned into a piano. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's where right. I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've seen that somewhere. Uh, uh, there yes. you got that, yeah. Uh, Marvellous, and that's, uh, sorry, that's out in February. That's out in early February, right. yeah. yeah. Exciting. And then what are you doing for the rest of the year? <laughs> the Nothing. The year. Well, there's the festival. Um, I also have um, lots and lots of uh, orchestras that I work with on a regular basis. So um, in Hertfordshire, it's really weird because I spend a lot of time in Hertfordshire, but I don't live there, I live in London. Um, the Hertford Symphony Orchestra, which is how I first got to know the county, the St Albans Symphony Orchestra. Um, and in uh, London, the Finchley Symphony Orchestra. Um, I also do, um, uh, at Easter time, of course, with something called the Easter Orchestral Society, which is for, uh, it's a nationwide thing. People who would love to play enormous works, sort of huge orchestral things, but their local non-professional orchestra just wouldn't have the resource. So we come together at Ellesmere College over Easter and it's about 90 piece, every, everything in there that you can do. We're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, Holster the Planets, which is actually one of the more uh, repertoire things that I've ever done with that group, but you'll you'll come across things that you just wouldn't come across anywhere else. I am reminded of all of this busyness uh, of possibly why you've got a dog. <laughs> yeah, maybe the dog is forcing you to relax. Yes, definitely. <laughs> He's been very good, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm quite surprised yeah, at how good. Him. Yeah, He's still alive. <laughs> there was something in the, something in his treat. Yeah, he's an emotional support dog. But, uh, <laughs> oh, Tom. <laughs> yeah. uh, so presumably that's why, because it sounds very busy. It is very busy, um, and I love it, and I think I'm very lucky. I had a very unusual route into conducting. Um, I think I mentioned before that everything has been a bit of an accident, and when I was growing up, the accident was that um, I used to deliver newspapers, yes. and one of the people I delivered newspapers to was a gentleman who'd been a dance band musician after the Second World War. And he got talking to my mum, and my mum said, oh, you know, Tom seems to be interested in music. And this chap said, well, I've got a double bass and a trombone in my garage. And I'm not very tall, so the double bass was never going to be an option. And frankly, the trombone was a bit of a stretch, but that was the best thing. Hey, so, boom. Yeah. <laughs> so I fell into playing the trombone. Um, I, I then fell into going to music college as a trombonist I kind of always knew and I have no idea why, literally no idea why because I was pretty shy, actually I was excruciatingly shy um, that I had this thing that I wanted to conduct and I can't tell you why, I'm not a megalomaniac so that wasn't it, it was some kind of contact with music and I loved playing the trombone and I did that professionally for a decade um, played the sack butt as well, the renaissance um, and had you know, amazing experiences, went around the world, did a lot of things at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, so I got to dress up in silly costumes and work with famous actors. You're saying that like that's a good thing? Yeah, well, some of it was. One, one, one costume. I, I, I'm, I'm not made for a dress, I'll put it that way. <laughs> possibly a little bit chilly, given that it's close. Yes, it can be, yeah. But the, um, the route into conducting was that um, 
I was sort of always doing, trying to do things in the background to generate a bit of conducting work for myself. And eventually, um, I got asked to do a project at Trinity Laban Conservatoire, which had just moved to Greenwich at that time. And after a concert that I'd done with their symphony orchestra, they said they were very disappointed I hadn't applied for the upcoming conducting fellowship, which I had no idea existed. Um, and I had two weeks to prepare for this thing. And it had been newly created by Sir Charles McCarris. Now, I didn't really understand who he was at that point, And I frankly, thank the Lord, because I had to go and stand in front of him and conduct and then be interviewed by him. Did you know when you stood and conducted? Not fully, no. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) I was was nervous enough as it was. And when you did find out who he was, what did you think then? I retrospectively um, was extremely nervous (laughs) for that interview. But I had incredible uh, good fortune because he then meant he, he didn't teach anyone to conduct if anyone ever says Sir Charles McCarris told me to conduct then they're lying because he said he couldn't teach it but what he did was mental and that was basically through going around to his home and talking with music in hand and then I would go along to his rehearsals and observe or recordings and observe. He was always on the end of the phone. I mean, he was just so generous with his time, considering he didn't have much time. He was getting on and actually, now I know, I didn't know at the time, was actually quite ill um, with the blood cancer that eventually killed him. But um, what an amazing experience. And that meant that I could swap as my... Uh, former brass colleagues described it to the dark side and went from the from the back of the orchestra to the front with all the jokes that come with that they're just they're just jealous yeah <laughs> um, who was the dance band musician oh no he was an interesting man called Gordon Williams and um, I'm grateful that he just let me have that we didn't have much money so I had a free instrument and free lessons for a while and then I was able to get further free lessons in the in the state system and then eventually I kind of needed to upgrade a bit and um, was able to have lessons with a member of the CBSO because I lived close enough to Birmingham for that to be the big local orchestra. Uh, and just going back to that album of Sibelius' greatest hits that your parents had, do you recall, this will sound quite odd, but do you recall what quality the LP was when you took it out of the sleeve? Had it been well played? No, I don't think it had. I mean, by the time I finished it, with it, it had. But I remember it was still in its cellophane wrapping. Um, I, I, yeah, it was a bit of a crackle, you know, from a from a stylus. So I don't, it hadn't really been played. I don't think it had been played much, if at all. Yeah, I need to find it. It'll still be somewhere in a box. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you? Oh, uh, the dog is I think maybe he's telling us that you yeah, know the interview is over. The interview is over, but um, no, I think that's right. that's a very nice right. uh, thing. So I, I think, don't need a treat. <laughs> you can have one. <laughs> They're very nice, aren't they? Think so. <laughs> You've been listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes, and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at thoroughly good post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.